Hi, good afternoon, everybody. We want to welcome everyone back for the episode two, uh, uh, episode two of season two of the Legal uh, Zone. I'm your host, Regina Campbell, and today we have the uh, pleasure of uh, bringing on a speaker, very well-known, uh, well world-known person. Uh, I mean, attorney, excuse me, Mr. George Berman, that is going to help us and be able to answer some questions for us today. The topic is of one of specific interest and importance uh, it's related to international law and arbitration, and specifically the importance surrounding governing law and venue clauses. So Mr. Berman, he's uh, the director of the, sorry, I'm gonna, let me bring you in, I'm sorry, <laughs> Mr. Berman. Um, he's the uh, director, this is Mr. Berman, as everyone can see on the screen. And Mr. Berman is the director of the Center for International Commercial Investment Arbitration at Columbia Law. Uh, Mr. Berman is also a world-renowned authority on comparative law, European law, international trade contracts, world trade dispute resolution, and transnational litigation and arbitration uh, in general law. Welcome, Mr. Berman. Thank you. And thank you for coming on with us today. It's such a pleasure to have uh, some of your experience to shed some light on some of these issues. Um, in general, we all know, of course, the um, we all know that everything, as with everything in contract law, you agree what you agree to in writing is what can make the make a difference, a world of difference. Uh, the written provisions in a contract are meant to embody the essence and the spirit of the parties of what the parties have agreed to, and therefore. Most general, generally, most courts in the world, absent a public policy issue, will first review what the parties wrote or agreed to, so to speak, to determine how to apply different laws and what the parties intended. Since many countries have their own laws and, and a governing body of law, the jurisdiction can make a monumental difference in how a contract is interpreted and enforced. So we brought you on today to help us as not just lawyers, but of course, business people navigate these waters and the difficulties that exist often with uh, not just including a governing law clause and a, or a venue clause as well, but writing it properly and effectively. So we were hoping that you might be able to assist us today. One of the first yeah. Okay, thank you. And by the way, yes, say thank, hi. <laughs> uh, so one of the first questions is, um, though the requirements may vary from country to country. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> Um, though the requirements may vary from country to country, what do you recommend a governing law clause must have? Okay, well, thanks for having me, Regina. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. It's a subject I like speaking about. Uh, mm -hmm. So let me say before I answer your question that on some of your questions, um, we will distinguish between litigation and arbitration okay. because the the, the circumstances are different in some respects. So from time to time, I'll drive a wedge between the two um, in answering you. Uh, but as a general matter, uh, a choice of law clause, we'll start with those, uh, will, of course, most importantly, designate the jurisdiction whose substantive law the parties are submitting to. I underscore substantive. That means the law governing the merits of any dispute that may in the future um, arise. Uh, now, choosing a jurisdiction is, um, is more complicated than it may seem. Mm -hmm. Certainly in the US with a federal system, uh, you're advised to choose a state 
law rather than U.S. law, if only because we have no U.S. law on many subjects, including um, tort and contract. So advised to select a state. Um, you don't need to select a county or a city. Um, no, select a state uh, and bear in mind that whatever the substantive law of that state is, is presumptively the law in accordance with which your rights and obligations will be defined. So Regina, that's, that's um, paramount. Mm-hmm. And we want precision about that. Now there are some um, m- more narrowly gauged issues I'd like to mention mm-hmm. that uh, may not be as well known. First of all, it is desirable if you are serious about uh, the law, being the law you select, then you might want to avoid the risk, and this is fairly complicated, you might want to avoid the risk that a court will review the law you chose as including its conflict of law rules. Now, I'm not sure if that makes sense to everybody, (laughs) but maybe I should elaborate a little bit. Yes, Uh, please. Every jurisdiction has so-called choice of law rules which means if the parties haven't selected a law, uh, then that jurisdiction tells you what law will apply to that kind of case. Now, there are some countries in the world that say when you choose French law, first and foremost, you're choosing French choice of law, not French law. Yeah. It means that French choice of law might send you to Brazil. Yeah. I hope that's clear. (laughs) Now, fortunately, there is a presumption that when you chose a law, you did not choose conflict of law rules of that state. (laughs) And I think you'll agree with me, Regina, that that's that's a fair presumption. Yes, yeah, definitely. (laughs) When you're drafting your contract, you're lucky if you have a choice of law clause, but you're undoubtedly not going to think about whether you're choosing the conflict of law rules Um, or the substantive law. Mm -hmm. So there's that strong presumption. But I will tell you that um, drafters of contracts try to leave nothing to doubt. And therefore, it's been very widely the practice to say any and all disputes will be decided under the law of Illinois without reference to its choice of law rules. Yeah, notwithstanding the choice of law, you know, choice of law, yeah. (laughs) You know, skip that and let's go right to Illinois contract law. Um, So there could be some some surprises (laughs) if you find that your contract gets governed by the contract law of a country other than the one, the law you chose. Um, The next most important thing is to designate the universe of disputes that are meant to be covered by a choice of law clause. Now, this will be also true of our choice of forum clause if and when we get to it. Uh, But they need to be interpreted. And depending on how the choice of law clause is drafted, it can be broadly or narrowly applicable. Let me be clear. Mm -hmm. If you draft a choice of law clause in such a way as the following, Any and all disputes, um, I want to back up. This contract shall be governed by 
and construed according to Brazilian law. Just take that as my example. That choice of law clause may be considered to apply only to contract cases. Let me repeat this. Uh, if your choice of law clause says um, this contract shall be governed by uh, or and construed in accordance with the law of Brazil, uh, then what you have designated is Brazilian law for your contract cases. Right. right. Now, now, practical business people, uh, if they really want a choice of law clause, probably want more than the contract law of that state. Uh, they want a product liability suit to be governed by the law of that state. They want a tortious interference with contract. Right. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, decide what it is you want to be governed by it. Most people want more rather than less. And I Therefore, assume they don't want the confusion either, yes. right? Yeah. Usually you want a body of law and you're not really thinking about what the outer boundaries of the lawsuits are that you want governed by that law. So the way to do that, uh, the way attorneys do that, is generally to say something much broader than what I have just said. Rather than say the contract shall be construed in accordance with or governed by, you say something along the following lines. Any and all disputes that may arise out of or relate to this contract shall be governed by the law of Brazil. So arising out of or related to. That, that's the, um, the standard language for breadth. Don't just say arising out of, because that may be read as, again, contract. contract. Only. So if you want to have an IP claim covered, if you want a product liability covered, if you want an antitrust suit covered, related to is very important language. So that was a long answer. Um, and I know you have many questions, so I'm going to stop there on that one. But you can trust me, there's more to say. Yes, I can. I know there's so much more. And, like, and I'm glad you touched upon the fact that it's if you're not careful, you're actually too narrowly defining it. You want to yes. make sure you, you know, you're doing something with purposeful intent, because if not, the court will just see it that way. Yes. You said contract will, language. Yeah. yeah, the court will read your contract, just as you said. Yeah. And if you said, I want my contract construed according to Brazilian law, they're going to say, that's fine. We'll construe the contract. But otherwise, the law will be governed by the law we designate. Yes. under our choice of law rules. Yes, which can make a huge difference, like we're talking about with torts or other issues and intellectual property rights and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So Very, I hope that was useful. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in general, though, do you find that in most countries they also require, of course, um, or they require a governing law clause to be in writing? I assume there's certain minimal requirements, right? That Actually not. Oh, wow. um, okay. In most jurisdictions, contracts themselves except in very special categories, do not need to be in writing. Even the contract, uh, oral contracts are well known. I mean, it's not advisable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not advisable to leave your contract in oral terms. Right. But uh, no, there's no particular requirement. I'm gonna, if you ask me this question about choice of forum clauses, mm -hmm. we're not there yet, but yes. if you were yeah. to ask me, I would give you a different answer. Uh -huh. 
Well, would you like to go there first? I mean, would you well, like to go there now? <laughs> no, let's stick with choice of law because I think that's the sequence of your questions, or am I mistaken? No, you're correct. You're and correct. just remind me to go back to that one, if okay. you can recall. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So, uh, is, uh, I mean, in general, so there is, it can vary significantly from country to country, but there is some norms like you're indicating, right? That yes. doesn't necessarily have to be in writing. I assume one of the things that the courts may look at, even if it is oral, again, not advisable, um, but did the parties intend, I guess, to be bound by certain contracts? I think they would look at certain, I guess they would look at extrinsic evidence or some evidence as to what they might have intended, or they would just purely apply the law. Well, if you're talking about the choice of law clause itself, yeah. mm -hmm. then, then yes, the uh, plain meaning rule, uh, okay. these are not complicated clauses. Gotcha. This will be a lot easier than some of your contract clauses. So, gotcha. <laughs> okay. so you can rest assured that if you say any and all disputes arising out of or related to this contract, it will cover it all. Okay. Um, I can't resist telling you, though, that this practice mm -hmm. of allowing parties to choose their own law mm -hmm. is, um, I won't say of recent vintage, but if you go back enough decades, that wasn't allowed. Parties were not allowed to choose their law. Uh, we assume it now, and we've assumed it for decades now, but there was a time when choice of law clauses were viewed as against public policy and unenforceable because parties do not have the authority to tell courts what law to apply <laughs> to the disputes that come before them. That probably sounds rather quaint uh, to you right now, but... We live under a regime of party autonomy, yes. as it goes. I just don't want people to assume that it would necessarily have to be that way, because at one time it wasn't. Right. Okay. So it, it's a benefit, and I think that's why courts also probably look at what you did write and what you did agree to. With oh, yes, more, all the more reason. Yes, makes sense, definitely. So some of the also... So the question number two I had is, are any of the other factors to be considered in drafting a governing law clause? Um, you know, should you consider, of course, that, you know, of course, there's favorability in one, maybe a country versus another for industries. Right. But is there something else that you would also recommend um, that we don't always know, right? Yeah, when, when, very good. Um, yes, uh, here will be a simple answer. Uh, you, before you choose a law to put in your contract, you should, this is my advice. You should try to anticipate what kind of what kind of dispute is likely to arise. Now, sometimes that's not feasible, but let me give you an example of where it is feasible. In distributorship contracts, almost invariably, the claim will be that the manufacturer abusively and prematurely terminated the distribution agreement. So it will be a claim by the distributor against the manufacturer. And therefore, we know with high level of confidence mm -hmm. what the dispute is going to be. Yeah. Uh, we don't always, Regina. I'm giving you an unusual example. The more you can predict mm -hmm. what dispute or what category of dispute is likely to arise, the more it behooves you to do some research. Yeah. And, and because countries do differ in the extent to which they protect consumers, um, and on and on and on. 
so I was, my answer to your question is um, yes, but in proportion to the predictability of the disputes that are apt to arise. Okay, that makes sense. And, and as you indicated, some countries are also more friendlier towards transparency or economic, or you know, trying to bring in the business also. So a little bit more friendlier to um, yes, re and they want to be known for that as well. Right? They want to be known for liberality. Yes, toward party autonomy. Yeah. Um, in arbitration, um, I just want to insert here mm -hmm. that you're not only going to choose a governing law but you're going to also choose a seat of arbitration. Now, I don't know if you want to go down the arbitration rabbit hole right now, <laughs> but this is one of the examples I was alluding to where there are some differences. So just as a, to round this out, mm -hmm. um, in arbitration, you should not only select your governing law, but select the seat of the arbitration that will take place because that arbitration will be governed, the arbitration itself as a process will be governed by the law of arbitration of the seat. And the law of arbitration of the seat is not the same in all jurisdictions. And some jurisdictions are regarded as more arbitration friendly mm -hmm. than other jurisdictions are. So I would just say this, on many of the questions you're asking me and are going to ask me, mm -hmm. it, the answers will be bifurcated between Depends. litigation and arbitration. Yeah. This is a good one. Yes. And that's one of the examples I was going to go into or was talking about what would be the difference if you, in a governing law clause, which I presume also would go into the venue clause as well, in making sure it's clear that you choose arbitration versus yes. litigation and that you've su successfully uh, written it that way. So there's no, even if there's a question as to whether you intended to arbitrate, yes. the question of arbitration goes to an arbitrator first versus now litigating whether the intent to arbitrate should go here or there. You know, it, it becomes another fertile ground yeah. for litigation, right? Well, yeah. And there are standard form um, arbitration clauses. Most, most parties uh, that choose to arbitrate their disputes select an arbitral institution the International Chamber of Commerce, the American Arbitration Association, the London Court of International Arbitration. Um, they, they select um, that. Um, so we know they've chosen arbitration. Right, right. Because the vehicle they've chosen is an arbitration institution. Um, I've seldom seen a case where it was unclear that whether arbitration was contemplated or not. Mm -hmm. um, in the interest of full disclosure though, mm -hmm. there is, and this is a detail, but there is something known as an expert determination. Now, let me just explain. Parties are entitled to delegate to a decision maker a one or more factual findings, not legal issues, but factual issues. And if they do that, they don't go to arbitration because arbitration is about the application of law. Yeah. So just to make this very concrete for you, I, I sat in one case where there was a rupture of a cable underwater and the parties agreed very sensibly mm -hmm. that since they had a dispute over who was responsible, they would first have an expert determination as to where the leak occurred 
-hmm. and all the scientific and technical stuff. They wisely said, we don't need an arbitrator for that. We need an expert for that. And when that was decided, Mm -hmm. then I'm the arbitrator. Mm -hmm. And those facts have now been determined. And I will proceed to the issues that are appropriate for me. So I would say the only real confusion might be if what you intended was expert determination. Okay. Okay. So I've seen a couple of cases more recent. Actually, I do see arbitration clauses written much more clear. Like they'll say, that, you know, the American, you know, you know arbitration. But some every so often, someone will say, especially when you have small business owners, we agree to arbitrate in the event of dispute. And it's sort of yes. like, what is well, that? Well, <laughs> what they've opted for has yeah. a name. Mm-hmm. It's called ad hoc arbitration. Yeah. <laughs> ad hoc only here means non-institutional. So there are no ground rules. Right. And I, and I think that segues to our next question, too, that talks about a governing law clauses. Can they account for the distinction of how like a forum uh, country would apply procedural versus substantive? And then I think this is really fertile ground for the distinction between arbitration and litigation, right? Because in an arbitration, you're kind of already setting that the ground, the procedural rules are in place. Yes. Yes. Fair enough. So you're right in your questions to me to at least initially draw a distinction between choice of law clauses and forum selection clauses. And well-drafted contracts should have both. It shouldn't be assumed that because you chose a forum that you chose its substantive law. You simply chose its courts. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fundamental. So basically, the jurisdiction whose law you chose will govern the substance of your dispute. Mm -hmm. The jurisdiction whose courts you chose will govern the procedural aspects of your dispute. And the courts of every country have civil procedure Mm -hmm. laws and rules. So substance procedure distinction, which is sometimes discredited as, um, you know, not sh- not as sharp as it sounds, um, is really critical here. Yeah. Uh, and you're right, if you choose arbitration, then you're not looking at civil procedure codes. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the procedural rules of the institution who which you selected. Right. And anything mandatory, meaning you can't contract around it, mm-hmm. in the law of the seat, the arbitration law of the seat. When you choose a seat of arbitration, you choose its law of arbitration. You don't choose its substantive law. You choose its law of arbitration. Um, Most rules in those laws are what we call default rules, meaning that you can contract around them. But if you don't, those are the rules. So. Party autonomy is really built into this very heavily. Mm -hmm. But in every jurisdiction, there will be something that will be deemed mandatory in the arbitration law. And you you can't contract around it. And you can't contract around it. Okay. Uh, But and I and I think to myself, because people do, they often look overlook what one country can call procedural versus another, and it can make a difference in definitions of, you know. I'm so so glad you said that. Um, really glad you said that. One of the the 
issues over which there is a division of views among courts around the world that can be outcome determinative is the statute of limitations. Now, this is really remarkable. We teach our students in the United States, and they learn that the statute of limitations applicable to a dispute is the statute of limitations in the forum. It's procedural. Right. That's just what we do. We say if it doesn't matter what the governing law is, it could be it could be a French law dispute, but if it's coming into a New York court, it's New York statute of limitations. That is a minority view around the world. Most jurisdictions in the world, I think rightly, but that's my opinion, take the view that the length of time within which you are permitted to bring a lawsuit is inextricably related to what your rights and obligations are. It's almost part of the definition of your right and obligation. And people from those many, many, many jurisdictions cannot wrap their arms around the idea Mm -hmm. that we think the court should be supplying the statute of limitations from its own law and applying it to a dispute governed by the law of another country. So I couldn't give you a better example of what you have just said, which is characterizing an issue. Um, One further example, remedies. There Mm -hmm. are some courts in the United States that, again, they think, well, we'll get your rights and obligations from the law you chose, but we'll decide under our law remedies you're entitled to because remedies are procedural. Other countries can't believe that. They think the remedy is indistinguishable from the right. It's true, from the harm. That is my view, but it's not the prevailing view in this country. Mm -hmm. But what a difference it can make. What a difference. Yes, and then if you don't know better and you choose a particular, okay, let's use uh, New York law, you know, and and it changes the statute of limitations and used to something different. You know, know, this is a a case I've become familiar with, with, it's a defamation case. And the statute of limitations on defamation um, in um, New Jersey, because it was arising in New Jersey, is one year. Oh, wow. But the defamation occurred in Belgium, if it was defamatory. And the statute of limitations is 30 years. Wow. Okay. No. So have I, have I impressed upon you <laughs> that <laughs> yes. it, can, it can make a big difference? And remedies as well. Yeah, that, that makes all the sense in the world. What kind of damages you're entitled to and also yes. entitled to injunctive relief. Exactly. Um, are you entitled to specific performance? Mm-hmm. Um, are you entitled to punitive damages? Uh, just on and on. Yeah, yeah. And I think some of those things also, like you were saying, when you're planning and doing research on something that's important, you know, if a client has a particular concern or heightened risk in a transaction, Think about how that's going to come about. That could help why you're drafting a clause or picking a certain form. Things you understand yeah, these not, things. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen as often as we'd like. I mean, contracting parties don't know who's going to be the claimant and who's going to, who's going to be the plaintiff and who's going to be the defendant. Ex ante. Yes. Yeah. They Unless, don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's true. I mean, I'm sure even the car manufacturers and the large multinational corporations, they wish they could 
kind of uh, <laughs> foresee things a little differently. Foresee, yes, yeah. but they don't know, and their interests yeah. would diverge <laughs> yeah. on any given issue, depending upon whether they were plaintiff or defendant. You're exactly correct. Yeah. So I don't yeah. want to exaggerate yeah. the level of predictability. Yes. Um, you, you asked about other considerations on choice of law. Let me just say this. You did ask me, I think, uh, about whether the body of law would be well-suited for the subject matter. Um, and, and that is interesting. As an example, parties very often, international um, contracts, choose the law of the United Kingdom, even though the United Kingdom has nothing to do with their case, because they think, rightly or wrongly, that English commercial law is the most, is the soundest body of commercial law there is. They may choose English courts, mm -hmm. uh, but we're talking about the law now for, for a moment. So mm -hmm. you could say, um, I want that body of law, even if it's unrelated to my transaction, uh, because of what I think is the expertise or the leanings or the biases, whatever it might be. <laughs> right. That's of yeah. that law. Yeah. And in general, like, I guess the country might just be more welcoming for certain either industries or certain transactions or just, and then you say, okay, you know, it's kind of like Delaware, you know? Yes. They, they, yeah. So they're just very well versed and people would rather bring the, especially shareholder actions. Exactly like right. Yeah. So well, that's in terms of the choice of jurisdiction whose law you want. Yes. Yes, definitely. So that kind of leads us also, and a lot of this has been intertwined because when you think about governing law, um, some people don't always connect governing law with venue. And I think yeah. we've already given a couple examples of as why it can make a big difference. Um, yes. So when we talk about, um, excuse me, sorry, venue or jurisdiction clauses, talk to me about some of the other factors that you would think that are necessary and also the, why it makes such a distinction so everyone can understand. And then we gave a little bit of an example in procedural and substantive, but why it's so important also to pick where the court, I mean, where is, where's the dispute gonna happen? Of course. Mm -hmm. um, well, um, where the dispute is going to be litigated, mm -hmm. let's say, rather than the um, underlying transaction. Mm -hmm. So where the dispute is going to be uh, litigated, well, there are so many factors that parties will take into consideration um, in determining what is the optimal court, or whose courts, which country's courts are the optimal courts. Um, now, one obvious, if you think your own home court mm -hmm. will tend to favor you, then you will prefer that. Your adversary won't. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that will probably not fly. Mm -hmm. um, but I mentioned the UK when I mentioned expertise in commercial law. But there are other factors about courts. Um, you've got to determine, frankly, unless you don't care about it, uh, whether there's competence, whether the uh -huh. courts are competent, whether the courts have intolerable delays. Exactly. Um, I don't want to name names, but even the people from India are very quick to say that the delays in the Indian courts are colossal. So you have that. It doesn't help if it's too no. long. <laughs> it, well, it may help the defendant, but it doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help the plaintiff. Yeah. 
Um, There is concern about corruption. Um, And I know many horror stories um, about choosing a jurisdiction whose courts are end up being demonstrably corrupt. Uh, so there are a lot of those considerations. Um, if you have counsel, mm-hmm. if you have counsel in whom you have great confidence uh, and whom you use with some regularity, uh, then it's good to choose the jurisdiction where that counsel is based. Okay. Yeah. The counsel knows the court. The counsel is obviously admitted to the bar, but even just knows knows the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just given you a scattering of, of considerations in choosing your court, but let me say here that the degree of party autonomy in choosing a court mm-hmm. may be somewhat less than the autonomy in choosing a law. And that may not be obvious why that is so, but sometimes our courts are more concerned about whether you've you've chosen a court where you won't get justice. Mm-hmm. Now, one view is, well, you chose it, and that's the end of the story, right? right? You chose it. <laughs> um, however, we do have a very important Supreme Court decision on this question. It's called the Bremen case, as in Bremen, Germany. And it's well worth reading if anybody's interested. And it it tells you that choice of forum clauses are valid, Mm -hmm. presumptively enforceable, to be uh, construed favorably, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. not if sending a case to that court would be contrary to the public policy of the court you're in. Mm-hmm. Not, and this is the more interesting thing, not if you would not have a cause of action yeah, in that makes court. Sense. So there are some limitations. I think anybody interested in in the, the conditions mm-hmm. to which uh, party autonomy in choice of court is subject should take a look at the Bremen case. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. So also, I have to assume with arbitration, you would think that kind of gets you over the some trouble, right? You think, okay, well, arbitration, and we're going to go by arbitration's rules procedurally and we'll apply certain laws. But is there a difference in venue? Because let's say, okay, I'm not going to your place and you're not going to go to my place. <laughs> you know, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So let's talk about the arbitration clause. Uh, So you're not choosing a court, you're choosing a seat of arbitration. That's very different. When you choose a court Mm -hmm. of whatever country you like, you're choosing its judges. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're choosing its civil procedure law, its view of any number of things, evidence, whatever it might be. Uh, So that's a choice. Once you make that choice, You've made many choices you don't even know you've made by choosing a court. When you go to arbitration, you have chosen the arbitration law of that country, and that's all. The arbitration law of that country. So before you choose a seat, it's advisable to familiarize yourself with the arbitration law of the country. They differ. There is a... um, a model law that has been widely adopted, 
uh, drawn up by the United Nations uh, that many, many countries have enacted with or without modification. Uh, so you really want to do that. And you want to bear in mind that an award that has been rendered at the seat is subject to annulment by a court yes. at that seat and only at that seat. So when you choose a seat, you're choosing the arbitration law and the court that will have the power to nullify the award. Okay. Now, whether you care about that or don't, is another matter. But most yeah. people are assumed mm -hmm. not to want a jurisdiction whose courts mm -hmm. are going to treat with what they were yeah, with mm -hmm. disrespect or frivolity, yeah. the yeah. award rendered on its territory. Um, so, so that's an interesting um, mm -hmm. consideration with respect to um, arbitration. Um, and I want to repeat that the law of arbitration usually tells you very little about how the arbitration is to be conducted. Yes. The institutional rules do. They are a kind of code of civil procedure. Civil procedure, yeah. Mm -hmm. For the arbitration. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's it's when you indicated, I always think to myself, okay, it's the arbitration law of the forum, and I you don't quite always think about the country it does. It has to be validated or can be converted to a judgment in that country. Yes. We don't think about that sec. We just assume it's a it's a given a lot of times. Well, that's a very um, good point. The law has evolved in this respect. There was a time when if you won an award in country X, in order for it to be enforced anywhere else in the world, you had to convert it into a judgment mm -hmm. by a court of country X. We don't do that anymore. That's been eliminated by an important vital treaty to which we're a party called the New York Convention on the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards. And that makes it very clear that the award does not need to become a judgment in order to be exported. So the award travels. And where it is going to be enforced, mm -hmm. it may need to become a judgment. So it needs to become a judgment where it is going to be enforced, not where it was rendered. Okay. So but technically, at one time, it had to be at both places. Both places, okay. Because that comes into question. So that court still that receives the incoming arbitration award, I assume for the most, but I know most countries are more friendly or in, in recognizing them if it's been done with proper procedure. But I assume it still has the right to say, oh, no, we're not going to recognize it. Yes. We don't think you had you know, jurisdiction when you got the original, whatever, yes. for whatever reasons, right? They well, your instinct is, uh, is correct. Um, okay. The convention I just referred to, which is really all important, the New York Convention, yes. Mm -hmm. which has over 160 signatory states. It's one of the most widely exactly. ratified conventions in the world. That convention obligates the courts of every signatory state to give full force and effect to awards rendered outside that state. Uh, most countries have demanded reciprocity. So only awards rendered in yeah. other countries that have signed that convention. Subject to seven exceptions. Okay. Seven exceptions, five of which parties are expected to raise 
and two of which are considered so important that the court can raise it on its own. So we have, it's very discreet. We know the seven grounds. I'd be happy to go through them, but you probably don't want me to. If you want to go through them quickly, it's actually very interesting, especially since okay. you, I think you helped write a lot of that, the New York Convention, right? The treaty itself? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very short convention. It's an easy yeah. read. It's, um, so the seven grounds quickly. The one, the first is the one you've already mentioned. Okay. Yeah, the, the arbitration agreement is invalid. The arbitration agreement is invalid in the judgment of the enforcing court. The award is as well. Second, let's call it due process. Was due process respected? If not, the award can be denied enforcement. Third, uh, did the arbitrator or the tribunal exceed its authority? Did it decide a dispute falling outside the scope of the arbitration agreement? Okay. If it did, it won't be enforced. Or to the extent it did, it won't be enforced. Fourth, did the tribunal disregard any, now it's going to have to be important, any important procedural um, uh, decision the parties had reached? Okay. Were the part, were, did the tribunal respect the party's procedural choices? Okay. Fifth, this is fascinating one. You can deny enforcement if the award brought to you was in fact annulled by a court at the seat. Oh, wow. Okay. So if the, if the award was annulled, mm -hmm. we just talked about that. Yes. Yes. If the award was annulled at the seat, that's a ground on which you can deny enforcement. Um, now, those are the five that you will waive if you don't raise them. The other two are, are considered to have, uh, you know, well, literally a public policy dimension. Yeah. So one of them is public policy. What are the values? What are the values that are held um, in such esteem, are considered so paramount in the society in which the enforcing court sits that it will not enforce a particular an award. Looking for an example, um, maybe you have an award based on a violation of a contract for trafficking in human beings. Hmm. Yeah, okay. imagine. Yes. Imagine. <laughs> I, I, I think there are contracts. Yeah, I mean, that happens and the deals are made. They may be oral. Right, but you're, you're yes, yeah. But there are agreements, uh, there's no question about it, oh, sadly. Yeah. So, so I'm just giving you a rich example yes. yeah. of where a court would say, well, there's nothing else wrong with this award, but that's wrong with this award. Yeah. We won't enforce it. And finally, and this is, I think, very important to know, the court where the, in, where the award is brought may regard the dispute as one that is not legally arbitrable. Okay. Uh, arbitrability is an important concept. Every country in the world, without exception, treats some kinds of disputes as non-arbitrable because they feel that those cases belong in courts and courts only. 
They could be matrimonial cases. They could be antitrust cases. To give you a sense of yes, yes, so every what, country yeah. decides for itself. Um, we we in this country in the U.S. have very few claims that are not arbitrable. Yes. Very, very, very yes. few. Uh, but some countries have very broad non-arbitrability. So if you bring your award to a country that says, uh-uh, that, that kind of claim is not arbitrable, it can be denied enforcement. Wow. All okay. these seven grounds are viewed as permissive, meaning mm -hmm. that the court may deny enforcement, but it is not required to. It could enforce it even if one of these were present, which doesn't usually happen. Doesn't usually happen, but you no. know, there, there you go again. We still have the element of forum law yeah. and human beings. So at well, the end of the day, me, yeah. I know you see this, Regina. You're a lawyer, but every and that was everybody listening. Uh, none of these grounds, none, implicates the merits, That's and that true. is fundamental. Okay. The substance of the dispute, the merits, the rights and obligations of the parties, the quantification mm -hmm. of damages, not reviewable either by the annulling court or the enforcing court so you you have to impugn mm -hmm. you have to be impugning the arbitration agreement or the arbitral procedure right or the bias maybe also or the right? bias yeah. um, or the offense to public policy mm -hmm. or non-arbitrability but not the tribunal got it wrong. Right. They're not the merits. You're not getting not an merits. you're not getting an appeal. And you're there not. is no appeal in arbitration right. unless you specifically contract for it. Parties seldom do. Mm -hmm. But some of the institutions are changing their rules to to accommodate arbitration appeal. Yeah. yeah. I've been seeing that. I think they're not satisfied with leaving any arms. Well, you know what they're worried about. People love arbitration because they think they're going to save time and money and, and formalities. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if a tribunal really runs them up, mm -hmm. if it really makes an egregious error of mm -hmm. even of law, it's, it's not remediable. No, I know. That's a scare. It's a little scary sometimes as well. It is. It is a risk. Yeah. It's a risk yeah. you're taking. And it's you can't complain. You need to have your eyes open. Um, you run the risk that an arbitral tribunal will be foolish, um, will maybe even be dishonest but without your being able to prove it. Right. Um, okay. right. No, it's true. <laughs> and and no. you have no recourse, except you can try to try to annul it. Yes. You can try to defeat its enforcement in another country. It's very limited. But, but the grounds are limited. Yeah, they're limited. So that's kind of why, it, you know, it's international litigation. I mean, it's hard enough when you go from state to state that has its own difference in laws and the way they apply them. Going from country to country, that could be a civil law country, you yes. know, coming from a common law country. So there's so many distinctions. But then again, they both have perils and, and things to be concerned yeah, with. But in terms of enforcement, there is a parallelism. If you get a judgment from France, it too would need to be enforced in the United States. That's true. So we will also look at foreign judgments. That's true, too. Yes, yes. So, so foreign judgments will get scrutinized. Arbitral awards will get scrutinized. Ordinarily, only on the grounds of the sort that I went over with you. All right. 
Wonderful. I thank you for being a little more patient and going over the seven points because you have so much knowledge. And I think it's so important to know that. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot out here. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know we could talk for days. I know it's like trying to pinpoint here and there, you know, but at least it gives us a broad overview and, and, and some examples specifically on how it can make such a difference. On how Absolutely. Are, you know. And can be outcome determinative in the extreme. Yes, which is ultimately what clients and lawyers have to, are, are concerned about, of course, you know, yes. when you make these decisions. So, yeah, so I, want um, to thank I just want to stress that the reason parties take the risk that yes. arbitration entails mm -hmm. um, is a number of reasons. I, I, I'll, I'll mention them and then may, maybe I've overstayed my welcome. When no, you're not at all. Not at all. Go um, ahead. It's thought to be less time consuming. This <laughs> that's subject to doubt. It's said to be less expensive. That's also subject to doubt because the biggest cost is the lawyer and you get the lawyer either way. Yeah. Um, it's thought to be informal, but it's getting more and more formal. Okay. Um, the real reason, I think, the durable reasons are, number one, you may not be able to agree on a forum and you may very much worry about being sued in your other party's courts. That makes sense. So rather than choose England, you know, which mm -hmm. may not even take your case, they may say we're inconvenient yeah. or inconvenience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, choose arbitration. And secondly, um, you know, you can choose your own, you can choose at least one of your arbitrators. Typically, each party okay. chooses an arbitrator, and either those two arbitrators or the institution mm -hmm. or the parties themselves choose the chair of a tripartite tribunal. So when you go into a court, uh, you get the judge you get. With the experience they have. Or don't have. Yeah, don't have, correct. <laughs> exactly. The expertise they have or they don't have. With the yeah. intelligence they, they have or they don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of time and effort um, is spent by parties and their counsel mm -hmm. in selecting an arbitrator because they want an arbitrator who is, I won't say biased because we don't want to say that, mm -hmm. but as is often said, is is predisposed. Yeah. To, I mean, I mean, the or to understand like what, it, because yeah. that's another thing. If you're talking about really complex issues with your IP or, engineering yes. or anything of that nature. You don't want someone that's learning this stuff. You want someone with an engineering background or a patent background. But you also want someone you think will be sympathetic to you. Of course, of course. Um, and of how, course. You know, you know, so so yeah. you want that. And, and you want an arbitrator who you think will have a, a clear capacity to influence the chair. Is he or she well-spoken? Mm -hmm. Is he or she persuasive? Does he or she good at constructing arguments? Does he or she exemplify or exude a sincerity and earnestness? Mm -hmm. uh, it's really very interesting. Yeah, I think parties do like that they're going to be able to put on that panel someone of their choosing. Yeah. And the only reason they can't is if there's a conflict of interest. Yes. And therefore, there will be disclosures required. Right, right. I mean, I do find it to be, initially, arbitration seems to be less contentious when you start it. 
And then when you start fighting over, okay, there's limited discovery. And then you, and then it goes into, whoa, and then everyone starts fighting. No, it's as adversarial. Yeah. It's every bit as adversarial. I spent this morning try, seeking to resolve a, a, a nasty a discovery dispute. And it's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, there are counsel who will fight about everything, who will not give an inch, who will demand documents that they themselves would not, Want. Would not produce. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it becomes, and then it's it's World War Three there as well. And it becomes, I agree with you, arbitration can be fairly expensive as well. It can be very expensive yeah. because lawyers um, charge mm -hmm. the same rates. Yeah. Um, and um, they may they may have fewer hours, but maybe they won't. Right. Build fewer hours. We we really we really don't know. Yeah. Um, so there are two different worlds, and I teach both. I teach both um, subjects. And I sit as an arbitrator. I don't sit as a judge, mm -hmm. but I, I sit as an arbitrator. So I'm constantly thinking about the comparisons between the two, mm -hmm. um, which is why it was very good that you invited me to draw some distinctions where they're apt. Yes, definitely. So, and I want to thank you so much for coming. It's been so informative, and I'm sure our guests love having you here and hearing all these good points and, and um, you know, someone with great experience on this issue. And it is, I think, a very important uh, it's a very important topic. I know it's maybe not the usually the substance or the meat of a contract no. per se, but it, you'll be surprised at the end. At the end of the day, it could be so important. In yeah, and I'll just close by saying sometimes the mm -hmm. the litigation or arbitration department of a firm, a large mm -hmm. firm, regrets that the transaction lawyers, know. <laughs> their, their colleagues, <laughs> didn't think about any of this. Yes, I've been on the litigation yeah. side going, mm, yeah. I wish this contract said that. <laughs> yeah, and they call this, the, they call the choice of law and choice of forum, sometimes they call them 11th hour issues. And you know what that means. <laughs> I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of crying sometimes, but yes, you know, <laughs> so. Um, but in general, no, I do. It's very, very important. That's why I thought to do a, you know, a podcast on it. And uh, for I'm business owners and lawyers. I hope it was what you wanted. Absolutely. And thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it very much. It was actually a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to say uh, thank everyone for joining us. If you'd like to see this podcast, it will be available to download and review. And so will Mr. Berman's uh, credentials and information if you ever would like to contact him or, or use him for anything. As you can see, he's very knowledgeable um, and probably very helpful, it sounds like, as, and a good arbitrator. Uh, so we want to thank everybody and stay tuned for our next episode. Or we actually have part two where we're going to bring on, uh, I think it's Carolyn Lamb also as one of the experts here to talk about her experience in litigation as well in the subject matter. So thank you, everybody. And everyone have a great weekend and everyone stay safe. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Mr.